says in Perak Zion Pasuk Yotes Shemos Vayomar Hashem on Moshe and Hashem said to Moshe Emoral Aharon you gotta go tell Aharon there's a message for Aharon Kach Matcha take the stick Unete Yodcha Almeime Mitzrayim and go and hit the waters of Egypt Al Naharosam, the rivers, Al Yehorehem, Al Agmehem, all the waters, whether it was like little pools, whether it was like lakes, whatever, with the water. Al Kol Mikveh Meimehem, Vihuladam. It's going to turn into blood, right? That's the first one of the Makas. Little kid said to. Thought he was very funny. His name is Yehuda Weinberg's son. He said the first maka was so dumb. Anyway, little kid. He thought it, he thought it was funny. He was rolling. He was rolling with it. Look at Rashi says. Rashi says something fascinating. Rashi said, "We all know this, by the way. We all know this, but we're going to read it over and then we're going to talk about it." Omar el Aharon, God says to Aharon, why did God tell Aharon to go and to make the river into blood? Why Aharon? Why not Moshe? Moshe did all, not all, he did almost all of the uh, ten, ten plagues, but the first one he doesn't do. Why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't he do the blood? So Rashi says, mm-hmm. because the river saved Moshe, right? Kishanishlachlitocho. Because when little baby Moshe was in the little basket, the river protected him. So therefore, you don't hit the river. You don't hit the river. The al yado. That's why the river was not punished. Not punished. It was not smitten. Lo not with blood. And now with the frogs. Although you should just know that Samson Raphael Hirsch says it wasn't frogs. He says they were little baby crocodiles. That's not so much fun. Well, little frogs that can make you crazy. It's slithery and in your bed and in your underwear and in your pajamas and, you know, whatever. So that's just the pain. The little crocodiles, we're talking a different story now. Anyway, Ali the Aharon. Right, so they, it was Aharon. So this is a very interesting thing. They're very interesting things. Somebody does something good for you. You got to remember. So let's talk about that for a second. What do we have in halacha, which is similar? What is, we have something actually very similar to this in halacha. Yeah, it's like Hakaratel, but with inanimate. I mean, let's be real. Did we think that the Nile River felt it? No. I mean, would the Nile River have felt bad? If Moshe would have hit the Nile, I don't think so. Why? Why do we cover the challah on Friday night? No, the reason. Well, you you're touching it. Why do we cut the cover the challah? What's the we reason? Don't make the challah feel bad. That we want the challah to feel bracha. bad that we're making a bracha on the wine first. So that's why we take the challah and we cut it up into pieces. <laughs> right? <laughs> that doesn't really make sense. You're not co- you got you to cover the challah over because it, it, it might feel bad. But then you take the knife and you cut it up. Right? What's the shot? What's the shot? It's sensitivity. It's sensitivity. The Gemara says that it says it's very interesting. It says... In the in the medrash, it's actually Gemara Babakama. If you drank water from a well, don't throw stones in the well. Somebody's good to you. There's something's good to you. You can't. You can't. You gotta be really, really careful to be nice to people who are nice to you. You have to be really careful about that. Right now, the whole world is not in a, in a happy, nice mode. So, you know, you could have had an agreement. You, ha- you could have gone to your mechanic for 26 years, and the guy treated you well. And then you went to him one time, and he screwed up. Okay, it happens. He screwed up. And that's it. You're so angry. You're so disgusted. How could this, you know, like, blah. 
you have to you gotta be careful. If somebody's good to you, if somebody's good to you, you have to be really, really careful not to turn. I'm gonna read you two stories from that. Uh, the Chavetz Chaim was eating some soup one evening. He repre- he repeatedly praised its good taste. Those who sat with him thought it was strange that the Chavetz Chaim should be so concerned about food. It doesn't seem like what you would think, right? They later found out that he did it to give pleasure to the housewife who had cooked the food. He understood quite, quite well that when a housewife takes the time and effort to prepare food, she's happy to hear that it was appreciated. These are little things. But these little things, you can, do, you can look at it two ways. Either you could say the little things are what caused the Chavetz Chaim to be the great Chavetz Chaim, or you could say that because he was so great, he was careful with all these little things. I think they're both true. But we have to be careful with the little things. Whenever there was a special occasion in the yeshiva, Rav Moshe Feinstein would go into the yeshiva's kitchen to thank the cook for her efforts. Once at the end of a special meal, a number of people came over to Rav Moshe to ask for his halachic opinion on some difficult matter. Rabbi Feinstein became involved with their question and forgot to thank the cook. The next day, the cook was thrilled when Rav Moshe Feinstein called her on her phone to thank her for a job well done. Again, the sensitivity. I want to hear a story similar to You have to understand who Rav Moshe Feinstein was. Rav Moshe Feinstein was a person who was so great in Torah learning and knowledge that if he would have been in any other generation, he would have been considered a great person anyway. Like in this generation over here, you know, like... I'm a rabbi for sure. Like, come on. <laughs> let's let's get real. You know what I mean? Really? You know? Would I really walk over to the, um, let's think of another big rabbi, who I, the Maral, who is the chief rabbi of, of Moravia, and say, yeah, we're in the same, you know, the chief rabbi. Of, yeah, I'm the rabbi in Queens. Wait, are you joking? <laughs> Let, let's get real over here. You know? So, Reb Moshe was like, he was like, Beyond. He was just beyond. And there's a very famous story that uh, was told over by Rabbi Tversky, who was the chaplain in Maimonides Hospital. It's actually a very interesting story. He, um, Rabbi Tversky, who was the... Maimonides Hospital is located in Brooklyn, and it is the, per, uh, I think, per, per, per area, has more babies... Am I correct about that? Than any other hospital in the United States? Correct. Am I like, per cap? Yeah, yeah for, uh, for sure. <laughs> they, 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 yeah. They like install a zipper. Just boop, baby, out, zip, out, done. <laughs> so, so, in Maimonides, he has a policy that any, that he has meetings, I don't know if it's once a month, once every two months, where he introduces the the, the new uh, nurses and people who work in cleaning the building, the, the workers, to giving them a little bit of a, an understanding about Jewish culture. For example, you have a nice woman from the Midwest, from, let's say, Oklahoma. She went to Oklahoma State College, became a nurse. She comes to New York. And she sees the, the, the rabbis. They're not rabbis. They just have the Orthodox Jews. They have beards. And she puts her hand out to say hello. And the rabbi, ain't, he, he ain't touching her hand. So you, know, you got to know that. You know, she would be insulted. She could be very insulted. You know, things like that. So Rabbi Tversky has a sensitivity meeting about Jewish culture for the people that don't really know. Right? All right. So he started the meeting one time by asking if anybody had ever met a great rabbi. So this black woman says that she did. So Rabbi Tversky asked her, like, who was the rabbi? And she said, Rabbi Feinstein. Now, 
Rabbi Tursky was a little bit taken aback, and like he he told over whoever he told the story to that like he was wondering like what may, what would she think makes a great rabbi like a bigger hat, longer beard like what what, what does she know? Not not because she's black. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with just how do you know who's great from the outside? You know. And so they asked her, and she said that it was the Rav Moshe's great-grandchild's bris, and she was the... What's my wife? One second, please. Just one second. Hi, Adina. Hello? 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 I'm giving a shear. Is everything good? Oh, thank you, thank you. He did beautiful. I saw pictures. Bye-bye. Yeah, so he said that it's, it's the bris of his great-grandson. And they bring Ramosha in in a wheelchair because he was in his 90s. And before he allowed the bris, before the bris took place, he asked to be brought over to the nurse. And he thanked the nurse for taking care of his great-grandson. And this woman who was the nurse said that he has to be a, a great rabbi if he would stop the whole ceremony just to come over and say thank you to me. These are little things. This is the reverse of the Chil Hashem that we are seeing presently online. This is the reverse of it. So yeah, so we worry about cutting, about the challah has to be covered. We worry about that. You know, not that you should yell at your wife and say, no, 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 no. You know, you hear people do that. It's ridiculous. What are you doing? Here you are. The whole purpose of covering the challah is to be sensitive and not make people feel bad, right? And instead, you're making your wife feel bad. That's not such a good thing, you know. But the concept, conceptually, is we have to be sensitive. We have to be very sensitive to everybody. There's another passage before. It says, Vayom Hashem Moshe. This is... Perek Vav, Pasuk Yud Gimel, he says, Vaidaber Hashem al Moshe, Hashem said to Moshe, Velaro, Yitzavim is B'nai Yisrael, and he commanded them to tell the, all the, the Jews, right? Velparo Melch Mitzrayim, about Paro, the king of Egypt. Why in the world did he, did he, why, what was he, what was his purpose of telling them that when you, that you have a chiyuv, an obligation to free slaves in Yeovil? Every 50 years, we have the Jubilee year, which by the way is, is amazing. Does anybody ever, you ever think about what Yeovil is? What Jubilee years, what it really does for the Jewish people. Obviously, everything we learn, every mitzvah we do has deep understand. as deep, it's God, you know? In that one year, everyone is free. Every Jew is free. That's all true. Because they can't be a slave. That's all true. But I want to explain that in, in practical world sociological terms. It's a reset. Huh? It's a reset. It's a reset. You take a society. How do wealthy people become wealthy? And what happens is that they become poor? Somebody came up with the idea that they're going to buy cryptocurrency at a dollar when it first came out. He makes a ton of money. He becomes a super millionaire. His, great ch his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, it goes down. They continue like unbelievable, right? Baruch Hashem. All of a sudden, there's one guy who decides that he's going to buy property in Albania because somebody <laughs> decided to convince him that Albania is the new Las Vegas. So he takes all of his money and buys Albania. I mean, I, I got nothing with Albania, so maybe Albania is a good place to put your money. Right? So, so if you think it is, then don't listen to this. In the meantime, the guy puts all of his money in Albania, and he loses everything. Everything. So what happens to his kids? They're screwed. They're, they're, they're finished. They're done. There's no money. That's it. 
So then their kids have to go to public school in Albania, whatever it might be. There's nothing. They're, they're done. They have to, and they're going to live in the slums, and they're just going to whatever. And that's how you get in, the, in India. You have the untouchable, right? You have the, the untouchables. That's it. You can't get out of it. Reality is that right now the American dream is not so much the American dream anymore. It's getting hard. It used to be rags to riches was a big deal in America. Not so posh anymore. But so that's what happens. You have a family. There was money. And some person, I'm, obviously it's all God. But if you want to remove God forbid, you want to move God from him, the guy made some stupid blunders. And the rest of forever and ever, his children and grandchildren are done. They're done. What does Judaism say? No. When you buy a house in Israel, you're buying, even today, you're not buying. When I buy a house over here, it's my property, right? It's my land. This shul, I don't own this shul, but if I did own this shul, this piece of land, property would belong to me and my family forever, right? There is a thing called eminent domain, right? The state can come in and say, we need this place. Then they have to pay the fair market value, right? But in theory, this land is mine. The government can push it out, could push me away. Then they have to pay for it. But this land is mine. In Israel, it doesn't work like that. In the state of Israel, you buy a piece of land means that you're buying a lease for 99 years and with the condition that at the end of the 99 years, it's an automatic uh, re, uh, re, re, uh, re, resale for another 99 years. That comes from the whole idea of Yovel. Because Yovel, you only get it for 50 years. That's it. So when you're buying a piece of property in, in, in ancient Israel, right? In ancient Israel, you're buying a piece of property, you're buying it for less than 50, for less than 50 years. So the price is changed based on the year you're buying it because it's only for 50 years. But what happens? At the end of the 50 years, Mr. Idiot's family gets their money back for the property. They get back all of their land. It goes back to the original owners. So now John, the son of the fool who bought all of his, put all his money in Albania, now he has a chance to start again. That's an amazing thing. So you never have an indentured, I think that's the proper word, an indentured society that can never get out of poverty, which is what we're suffering from. Where you have people in the United States, they've been three, four generations on welfare. They don't feel that they can get out of it. And they probably can't. Most of them probably can't get out of it. We don't have that. It's like almost like declaring bankruptcy in a yeah, way like the ability like you know you think this is all due to the 30 trillion in debt the government what what i don't know what you're talking about because they spend more and more money yes it's harder it's harder no it is harder it is harder that 30 that, trillion dollars it certainly makes it more difficult what he's saying is is yovel like bankruptcy or did they take this concept of bankruptcy from the Yovel? I don't know. It's an interesting question. What is the origin of the bankruptcy concept that you can declare bankruptcy? It stays on your credit for, I think, I don't know, five, six years or something. I don't know. Seven years, whatever. But then you're clean. Could be. I, I don't know where it comes from, but it's similar to that. Except that it could, the, all the bankruptcy gets rid of debt. Bankruptcy does not return property. So my father, let's say he 30 years ago, let's say 40 years ago, it's true, my father owned property about 40 years ago. And then, let's say he sold it. Well, that land would come back. When Yovel would come in it, I'd say, look at what I got now. I got myself some property, you know? Now, when does Yovel start again, by the way? When does it start again? Oh, the next session? Huh? So I think Yovel actually starts on Yom, uh, Yom Kippur. No, 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 no. I don't mean that. When do we start? 
When are we able to uh, start dealing with this Yovel issue? When are we obligated oh, on Shemitah and Yovel? When 50% of the Ooh, Jews are when we're at 50, 51, a little more, 51%, 51 of the Jews have to live in Israel. So, how many Jews are there in the world? I did this last week. Did we do it last week together? I think it was a couple weeks ago. Okay, we'll do it again because it's a good number. I like that. Nobody remembers it. How many Jews in the world? I know the answer to that. 15.2 million. 15.2 million. 15.2 million. Hold on. Hold on. 15.2 million. Hold on. Now let's see how many Jews there are in Israel. Again, this is not accurate, really. How many Jews live in Israel? According to Wikipedia, as of December 2023, this calculation stands at approximately 9,842,000 of whom 73.2%, about 7,208,000 people, are Jews. So this 52, 52, I'm sorry, 15.2 million Jews. And 7.2 live in Israel. That's like something like 48% or something like that. Am I right? It's something like that. So it's close. It's close. You can smell the cha-ching, the money coming back pretty soon. But it's, it's close. It's coming pretty close. So you're supposed to be able to feel the sensitivity of other people. I want you to hear this story because this is so important. It is so important, especially, I'm telling you right now, there's a sensitivity lack. I, it's so interesting, because as Jewish people right now, listen, I'm not talking about the, the people in Gaza, because and there's a war. And in war, there are innocent people that will be killed. I don't know how many of the Gaza people are innocent. I really don't know. But there are innocent people, so I'm not talking about that. But... In general, it's not the world doesn't seem to be a very, at this moment, an empathic, soft, sweet world where people are like out to think about how to help people, you know, and how there are. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't charities. There are charities, but it just doesn't feel like there's a Peace Corps movement in the world. You know what I mean? It doesn't. Do, do you know what I'm saying? It, it, <coughs> Do you agree? It doesn't. It's not John Lennon's imagined song. No, it's certainly not. Yeah. So one cold winter day. Yeah, this yeah. is. He also says no religion, though. Yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. religion. Yeah, Imagine He's no religion. He's not a tzaddik either. No, okay. no, he was not a tzaddik. I want you to hear this story. This is a famous story. It's unbelievable. One cold winter day, Rabbi Eliezer Chaim Maizel went to the home of a wealthy man to ask him to donate money to warm the home of a poor family, okay? So this, this was in Europe, in Poland, actually. So this person went to collect money for people who are poor. When the wealthy man saw Rabbi Mizel approaching, he ran out of the house to greet him. Assuming that Rabbi, the rabbi would immediately enter his house, he didn't bother to put on a coat. So he just, you know this story, right? He ran out. He sees the rabbi coming. You know, he sees the person coming till he opens the door. It's Poland. Poland. I've never been to Poland in this lifetime, and I don't plan on going to Poland. I hate Poland. But the bottom line is, it's pretty cold in winter Poland. That's what they tell me. So Rabbi Elio Chaim, however, began to talk with this guy at length, ignoring his repeated invitation to come inside. The guy's saying, let's go inside. He started getting cold, you know? And in the meantime, the rabbi who's wearing this winter coat and hat, whatever, he's warm. But the guy who's out there, he's wearing like a T-shirt. Now, I don't understand you, because look at you. I don't understand it, but okay. <laughs> Finally, when the wealthy man was shivering, Rabbi Meisel entered the house and said, I have to ask you for money to warm the house of a poor family. Since your home is always warm and you own a heavy fur coat, you might not understand what it means to suffer from the cold. Now that you've felt the discomfort of that feeling, I'd like you to give generously. It's important in life. God sends us situations and we have to like suck up those situations so that 
we are able in life to help other people. Some of the reasons we go through certain trials is specifically so we should be able to be empathic. In the olden times when the, the Baal Shem Tov lived in the 1750s, okay? And that, that was like the height of the Baal Shem Tov's life. And um, in those days, the early days of Hasidism, the first hundred years, let's say, 75 years, if one wanted to become a Rebbe, well, do it differently. Today, if you wanted to become a Rebbe, a Hasidic master, Rebbe, how do you become a Rebbe? How do you become a Rebbe? How did this happen? What did you do? If you wanted to be a Navi, a prophet, Derech Hashem, the way of God, written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Litzato in, in, the seven, in the 1600s, he writes that you went to Navi school, you went to prophet school. There was the prophet Isaiah would be sitting in the front and he would be teaching the potential students how to become prophets. They had to, be, they had to learn certain things. They had to be religious Jews. They had to be serious in the religion. But they had to also learn certain forms of meditation. And the prophet would teach them what to do. Just like if you want to be a dentist. They teach you how to drill the teeth. Right? Yeah. That's what they do. So... So, what were we talking about? I lost my brain. I lost the train. Uh, to be a prophet? Hold on. Prophet, before the prophet. Become a rebbe. How do, you become a, how do they become a rebbe? So today, you become a rebbe basically in one way, but it's possible to go the other way. The most, the typical way is that your father was a rebbe. Your father was a rebbe, or your uncle. In the case of Lubavitcher Rebbe, it was his father-in-law, although his lineage, he did have yeah, if you skip a few generations, he did come from that family. But by but basically, it was his father-in-law. You know, he made it big. You know, so he 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 was like the guy who whose father, like, was a trustee in Harvard. I should say Harvard. Harvard's a bad place. A trustee in Brooklyn College, and he goes to Brooklyn College, and then he makes it big. You know, not Brooklyn College. It is. Why you? Queen's College. Okay, you got you understand. So so the Rebbe was different because he he was a great on his own right. But how does a per most people become most Okay, I'll do that. So most of the Rebbe's became become Rebbe's in the last couple hundred years, it's been because your father was. Now, there are individuals who started new dynasties that they themselves are just great people, and they just they they just became it became, you know, like how was it that um, the Gera Hasidim, the Satmar Hasidim, the first Balatanya, you know, how it starts how it starts by somebody great. So going back in the old day, if a person wanted to become a Rebbe or Tzaddik, what he did was he went into Gullus. Ever hear that term? He he went into Gullus. Do you know what that is? He would leave his wallet, his credit card, identity. He'd leave everything behind. He'd get permission from his wife, and he would disappear for a year with no money, no anything. See, here's a guy who's living in Back Lawrence. You know, everybody knows him as being, you know, the heir to this big whatever. And he leaves with nothing except a shirt on his back. With no money, no credit card, no anything, no Google Pay, no, no nothing at all, and he has to survive. He how's he going to survive? He's going to have to sleep with the beggars. That's what he's going to do. He's going to sleep with the beggars. He's going to have to panhandle. He's going to have to get a job. He's not going to be able to sit and learn in Colel. He's got to feel the people. He's got to feel the people. Understand what they're going through. And if you don't feel what they're going through, then you can't be a leader. That's what this was all about over here. If you want to be a leader, and if you want to, in life, God sends us all situations that we go through, you know. So when I first got married, even recently, I borrowed a lot of money. I paid it back. But because I took home refinances and everything, but I paid it back, but I borrowed a lot of money. And I had a wad of checks that I used to pay him back, you know, afterwards. 
And when I have, we have a gemach by Hashivina, which means a free loan, a free interest-free loan. And when I meet people, and they're nervous sometimes, the Hashivina people they need to borrow money, so they feel uncomfortable because it's not a comfortable thing to have to borrow money. So then I will pull out that stack and say, "You want to see what it means to borrow money? Let me show you what it means to borrow money." And I paid it all back, but you know what I mean. And so you go through it. And that's part of life. It's experiences that we have. It's a very important thing. That's part of this week's Parsha. So we have to take in who we are, where we got it from, and we've got to make a Kiddush Hashem at all time. So taking that, anybody have any feeling or statement or anything about that? You're not digging any tunnels? I don't know what that was about. I don't know what that was. I don't know what that was. I don't know. Here, take this around here. We, we have a few more minutes we can in. Yeah, I don't know what that was. I, I don't know. I don't believe it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what anything is. So listen, I don't So let me tell you what I decided to do here. Okay. So let me just tell you what, what's going on. Taking this idea of the Kiddush Hashem and the Chil Hashem, going further, today is Rosh Chodesh. Right? It's Rosh Chodesh. <clears throat> so it happens to be that the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh is like the first mitzvah in the Torah. It's not this week's Parsha, it's next week's Parsha. But I said to myself, it's Rosh Chodesh. So let's talk a little bit about what it's what what Rosh Chodesh is about. And then I want to read quickly an amazing Gemara which talks about treating human beings and how you like again the Kiddush Hashem element. Because really I think that Chil Hashem and doing things that are nasty, I think that most of the time it comes from arrogance. I really do. And when you think of yourself, if you're a humble person, you're just not going to do this stuff. It's just, I, I think, that I, maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's how I feel. That I think that that's the primary problem, is, a, is a, an element of arrogance. So this is, this Sefer is the Sefer HaChinuch. Sefer HaChinuch goes through the Parsha each week and goes through the mitzvahs of the Parsha. And he starts with the first mitzvah, mitzvah over here, which is Kiddush HaChodesh. Now, what what I did over here was I made marks and notations um, on areas that are actually important. But the problem is we don't have enough time. So I'm just going to outside just ex- explain what the mitzvah of the new moon is, the new month. And then we're going to learn on the last page, the Gemara Sanhedrin, which is fascinating. So you can open it up to Yudala. Here was the deal. The, the Christians follow the solar calendar. Right? Christians follow the solar calendar. It's 365 and a quarter days in the solar calendar. That's not really 100% true. That's just what we follow. When I say it's not 100% true, it's not 365 and a quarter. It's 365 and a quarter and I think it's 11 minutes, which we basically think, or seconds or something. One second, you'll you'll hear right now, because it becomes a problem after a lot of years. How long is the solar year? 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, 46 seconds. According to Britannica, the solar year, 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, 46 seconds, also called tropical year or year of the seasons, is the time between two successive occurrences of the vernal equinox. Okay, so it's 365 and a quarter, but it's not really. It's a little bit off, which means that over the centuries, they add a day here or there. Because otherwise, the the year starts flipping around. So the Christians go by the solar calendar. The Muslims go by the lunar calendar. The lunar is 355 days a year. 
If you go exclusively by the lunar calendar, which means 12 lunar months, eventually you will have the seasons have different, the months that the seasons are in will change. Because there's an 11 day gap, uh, 65, 55, because there's a 10, a little bit more than 10 day gap, that means that after 10 years, there's a 100 day difference, right? 10 days a year, a month, so a year. So that means that Pesach, it says in the Bible, has to be in the spring. The problem is that if you went only by a, a lunar calendar, it won't be in the spring. It'll only be in the spring for a couple years, and then it'll be in the fall, in the summertime. That's why Ramadan, which is the big month for the Muslims, is always changing. It's like, it's not in the spring always, or the fall, or the summertime. It's always changing, because they have a strict lunar calendar. What we do is we have a combination. That's what we do. We have a solar calendar, which directs the seasons, and that's why the holidays have to be in the spring following the solar calendar. Once they hang out, once they hang And we have a lunar calendar, which we end up having a leap month, uh, you know, whatever. And that, that's the reason for the leap months to keep... That's why I have to wait 30 more days before. That's right, because the year was getting out of whack. So that's why we make this lunar year. That's why we do, we do both, because we combine both the lunar and the solar. Okay, now I'm going to read the Gemara. Listen to this Gemara. The halacha is when the rabbis would decide to make a new month, a leap year, you had to be invited to the party to make the new month. It was a, you had a best in court, but you had to be invited. So the Gemara says over here, Maisa Rabbi Gamliel, third word on the line. There's a story of Rabbi Gamliel, Sha'amra Hishkimu Shiva Lalia. He said, I want seven rabbis to go up to the attic. It wasn't really attic, it was like the roof where they could look and see the moon and the stars, the astrological things. He says, I want seven people over there. <laughs> he goes up there and there's eight people. That's a problem because the halacha is that you can only be part of the Besdin if you're appointed. So he said, I want seven people and there's eight people. Omar, so he said, Yered. <laughs> He said, whoever came up here and wasn't supposed to be here, can you please leave? You're not supposed to be here. You know, what are you doing? So there was a person, his name was Shmuel HaKatan, Shmuel the, the little one. He wasn't little. He was so not little that he's the one that wrote part of the Shmona Esrei of the Lama Shnimatisikva. He's the author of that. He was only called a little one. It was like because of his humility. He's called Shmuel the Humble. So that's where he was. So he gets, he says, Ba'amar, he got up, he said, Ani who shall lisi He said, I was the one who did it. I didn't do it because I wanted to be part of the best. And I, that would be like a, an arrogant, inappropriate thing for me. I wouldn't do that. He, I just wanted to see like how you do it. I was just... I wanted to see the practice, but I wasn't going to be part of it. Listen, you, you can sit and you could be here because you could be the person in charge of the entire Besden. You, you're the greatest around. So I'm not trying to get rid of you. And he just responded. Rabbi Gamliel is just saying, the only reason I said that people, somebody has to leave is Ella Amru. He said, I, I just happened to, I have to say the law because you got to be invited and you weren't invited. But really, but really, you're like, you're on top of the game. The Gemara says, well, Shmuel HaKatan. He said, what is Shmuel HaKatan? Shmuel HaKatan didn't go up there without permission. He was lying. He was somebody else. Somebody else went up there. But he didn't want that guy to get embarrassed. He didn't want to get embarrassed. So he took the hit because he didn't want to embarrass the other guy. And he tells over another story, another example. It once happened that Rebbe Yudan Nasi Dorish. He's sitting and he's giving a drasha. And he smells garlic. Bad breath. 
You're sitting in the front row giving a year, and there's somebody who stinks. You ever smell anybody who stinks, and you're saying, will you get a, take a shower, change your underwear, do something, man? Do something? A little deodorant. You'll take that out, right? A little deodorant. You got to do something. Omar, so Rebbe, just couldn't take it. He said, Whoever's been eating the garlic, you got to leave. <laughs> I can't. I can't do this. I can't do this. So Rabbi Chia gets up and he leaves. He doesn't say anything. He just leaves. When he left, So when he gets up, everybody leaves. So now Rebbe's sitting by himself because everybody left because he said whoever had bad breath should leave. And Rebbe Chia gets up and he leaves. So the other rabbis felt, you know, if he left, then we can't. Sit, we can't be here. Beshachar the next morning. So Rebbe's son happens to bump into Rebbe Chia, the garlic eater. So he says to him, You're the guy who really aggravated my father. What were you doing? Why can't you brush your teeth? Why can't you? You really ruined the day. Everybody left the yeshiva. What, what are you doing? He said, he said, no, this can't be. This cannot be. You can't do this amongst the Jewish people. You can't insult people. Even though the place stunk and even though it was uncomfortable and we all know what it's like to be sitting next to somebody that smells bad and you don't want to be there anymore, but you can't do it. You can't do it. You got to suck it up because so there's certain things you just can't do. And even though you're right, even though you're right, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't. You can't do it. You can't go. You want to go and buy antiperspirant and put it on the guy's stender. <laughs> Not that you're doing anything more, but you just want to give him a gift. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't do that. Where'd he get this from? Wait. Now we're talking. Wait until you hear this story. I don't know. It depends on what I say. Okay. I'll let you judge it. Where did Rabbi Chia, who left the room, even though he didn't eat the garlic, where did he get this idea that you have to defend another person even if they're wrong? May Rabbi Meir. It's the story of Rabbi Meir. What is the story here? Ditanya Maisa Isha Achas. This is the story. There was a woman. She shows up in the base medrash of Rabbi Meir. That's like Lakewood, okay? You got to understand, this is like, the Rabbi Meir is like, like he's the top, he's the top Rabbi, I mean, you know, Rabbi Meir. Amrulai Rabbi, she, she says to him, Rabbi, listen, one of your students, your students, married me through having sex. You see, there are three ways of getting married. The Mishnah says one way is kesev, which means anything monetary. You give a ring. That's what we do. We give a ring, and that's the form. Another way of doing it is having intercourse. But to do that, you have to have two witnesses who are told that they are, that, I mean, and, and the people have to say, we are going into this room to perform intercourse, and we're doing it l'shem shamayim, Fully, nothing because we're doing it because we want to get married, right? That's that's why we're doing it. We don't do that anymore because we're concerned that there could be some people that maybe, God forbid, Lo Alenu might not have the perfect intent when they're doing, when they're having this act, right? We understand that. So we don't do it anymore. So she goes into the base measures and she says, hey, you're going. It's too hot for him. So <laughs> you gotta cut that out. Anyway, so he goes into the base. She goes into the base medrash and she says, "One of your bachrim married me through sex." And what she wanted was like that guy should be reprimanded or whatever, and she wanted to get divorced. I'm a Rabbi Mayer, so Rabbi Mayer gets up, right? She tells him this: "The cost of look at Krisus. He writes a get, 
He knew very well that he didn't have sex with this woman. But he writes again to this woman, law, and gives it to her. When he does that, everybody else got up, and everybody, there's a whole line now, everybody's writing getting to this lady, and gave it to her. So that this way, nobody was embarrassed. It wasn't like, you know, that famous, you know, they asked her palm. I was there when, when at Torah Masara, they had questions and answers for the principals. And one of the questions was, if they steal a Rebbe's, uh, let's say, the, uh, the eraser, can you say to the class, no recess if you don't give back the eraser? And Rapam said, you're not allowed to do that because you're making kids speak Lashon Hara, snitching. We're not into snitches. We're not into snitches. So over here, that's what he did. He could have... You could see it happening. The Rosh Yiva is saying, this can't be our Bachram. It's not possible. We're going to do an investigation. And if we find out there was any, who that guy is, he's out on the spot. Right? You could see that. That's not what he did. That's not what he did. You have to feel the sensitivity for people, not to embarrass them. Not to embarrass them. Even if they did what was wrong. The, the person who was... Making, making Rebbe, and they couldn't breathe because of his, his bad odor. It's not, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. You ever have people that take off their shoes? And you're saying, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like baby powder. A little baby, yeah, baby powder. It's a big, big, this is a big issue. You're going to have to cut out part of this. It's a little bit. I don't know what that is. It's a Gemara. This is a Gemara. But this is the idea. Huh? Well, this is Sanhedrin Daf It's an amazing story over here. So the Gemara goes on. We're going to stop now. But it all came back from, from Yoshua. Because Yoshua, what happens, I'll just say it to you outside. That you, after Yericho, after Jericho, there was the battle of the city of Ai. The Jewish people get whipped because there was somebody, Achan, who, who, who took from the booty, which he wasn't allowed to do. And Yoshua says to Hashem, I want to know who it was so that we can punish him. And Hashem... Hashem says, the Gemara says, Vichidalteron Anochi, am I a snitch? Am I a snitch? I'm not a snitch. So he tells Yoshua that he should make a lottery. And he'll find out the information from the lottery. And he does. And Ochan is killed. But Hashem says, I'm not going to be the snitch. I'm not doing that. It's against you. We, we are so anti-snitching. We are so anti it. One of the worst things in Jew in Jewish culture is to be a, a uh, is to be a um, to do misira to be a moser somebody that snitches. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to call the IRS and say, yeah, I don't know, I, I don't know this guy Adam, yeah, Doctor Adam. I don't know. I don't know. He's a dentist, but he's driving a BMW. Oh. No, I mean, you know what I'm saying you can't do that. You can't. You cannot snitch. You know. Like sometimes I hear these commercials for the insurance companies that say that, you know, if you think it's insurance fraud, call us. Like hell, you don't do that. It, it's wrong. It's to do insurance fraud is totally wrong. And you should pay taxes, but 100%. But you don't call Pete. You don't, you don't snitch. We don't snitch. The only time we snitch, and you should be, I have to say this, I had a, a friend. I don't know if I should use his name. It wasn't his fault. He had a brother. The brother, this is a true story, by the way. This is a crazy true story. They lived in Flatbush. He had a brother. He's, he's a good guy. He had a brother. And the brother wanted to get engaged to a certain girl. They went to Lubavitcher Rebbe because this guy was a Lubavitcher Hasid. I mean, not really. He's a, he was a terrible person. But he went to Lubavitcher Rebbe and the Rebbe didn't give a bracha. See, when I got engaged, I wrote the Rebbe a whole thing about getting married to my wife. And then I wrote at the end of it, I said, I think that this is who I should marry, but how do I know? How do you know? And the Rebbe wrote back, Nachon, it's right. <laughs> 
And he gave me a bracha. Got a bracha. So the next day when I locked myself in the bathroom because I was afraid because of what I did, got engaged out of my mind, you know, I kept on ringing my head. The rabbi said, it's nachal, it's right. That's the truth. All right. Baruch Hashem, he was right. I'm very lucky I met my wife. This guy did not get a bracha. Kept on writing the rabbi back, didn't get a bracha. The family of the girl said, listen, he's not a murderer. What's the big deal? He's a nice guy. That's what they said. They said he's not a murderer. We'll go forward with the wedding. This guy killed his wife. He was in the diamond industry. He, brought, he lost his mind from stress or whatever. He killed his wife. He goes to the rabbi. Now, there's a thing called clergy, uh, a clergyman has, con- uh, a doctor has patient confidentiality, right? Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to tell anybody about my medical issues, right? I don't know how far it goes. Can you lose your license for doing that? Yeah. Or just a punish- punishment? It's no good. Huh? I, can you lose your license? You can be, yeah. It's bad. Yeah. So a rabbi has a, has a confidentiality right. Both clergymen have a confidentiality right that you don't have to reveal to people what happened in the conversation. Like, for example, a priest, they have the, um, what's it called? Uh, yes, forgiveness. What's it called? Confession. Confession. A guy says that he stole money from Bob. He can't go over <laughs> From confession and go over to the FBI and say, he's a story. You can't do that. I mean, you could do it, but there's, but if you don't do it, you're within your legal rights. But when it comes to hurting somebody, let's say murder, so the Rav called up Rav Moshe, I believe it was Rav Moshe, whoever he asked, and the answer was that you have to report it immediately because they didn't know that he killed his wife. Nobody knew what was going on. What did it have to do with anything? In general, we don't master. Oh yeah, we don't master. But when it comes, it comes to something like that. Yeah, you know. Otherwise, we don't. We don't do masira. Really bad. You know, we don't think. We don't snitch. We don't like that. You know, that's it. No snitching. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> no, I would never hurt anybody. No, no. That's a true story with the rabbi, by the way. It's a very strange yeah. thing when you deal with powerful people, Michelle, you know, spiritually powerful people like the rabbi. Yeah. Beautiful, guys. Thank you, buddy. Thank uh, except for what's it with the uh, the Vina?